So I got an email this week. You probably uh, know this. There's a new license tag in Georgia, and you can vote. So, Greg, so here are your choices. That's a lovely, they all have a theme with the peach thing. Let's see what else we got. Uh-huh, and that was nice. So this was a question that I had as I was looking at the website. There are eight options, and three of them have, in God we trust, on the bottom, I think. Is that true? What's the next one? Yeah. So three of them say that. And so I got the email, and I think the implication was kind of, you're a Christian, so you'll vote for a in God we trust license plate, which I, I don't know which, I don't, I don't know um, about that. But I, it got me thinking about the role of church and state and how those two things uh, intersect and interact. Obviously, it's July 3rd, July 4th weekend with patriotism running over. And for us, I think, collectively, church with a capital C, there's this question of what is the role and the relationship of the church to the state? If you look back through church history, 2,000 years, we've kind of gone all over the place. The first 300 years, uh, the church was persecuted by the state. Then I think it was in 313, Constantine becomes a Christian, and suddenly everybody wants to be a Christian because Christianity becomes the state religion. And there's 1,200 years of this kind of weird incestuous relationship between the church and the state, and there were different movements within that, but in general, they were, they were one, and uh, they power, one of them was 1A and one was 1B, depending on the situation in terms of who ultimately had control, and the Reformation, things kind of split out, and you had state churches, and our own country, when it was founded, you know, we have this thing, you know, people are saying, let's go back to our roots, and the founding fathers and the founding fathers were Christians or the founding fathers were deists or the founding fathers didn't care and it's freedom of religion or freedom from religion and all of this stuff that we have floating around as we're trying to discern what are we supposed to do. We talked last week about these seven areas of influence, seven ways that God tends to, or areas where God tends to work to impact a community and government was one of them and honestly for me government is the trickiest of the seven to really get a handle on and to know what are we supposed to do there? Family, education, church, business, those others, there, there, there seem to be some pretty easy on-ramps, but when it comes to government, it seems like that's a difficult um, wall. That's what we call them. We call them the walls of the city. That's a difficult wall to know how to address. And so today I want to look at that. <laughs> this is just uh, for me. I'm going to give you some disclaimers. About 15 people got up at 9 and left when we were done, so I don't know if I um, offended them or if they had some place to go. So I'm going to give you a few disclaimers. And if you have some place to go, that's fine. You, or if I offend you, you can leave as well. I would rather you tell me than just get up and leave. But um, let me give you a couple of disclaimers here that I didn't give uh, the first. This is going to be a bit heavy. And I don't mean it to be that way. I'm just trying to deal honestly with what's here. Um, and it's not, this is not disrespectful at all. Is anybody here military? Anybody have that background? Okay. So I'm not, I'm not. Uh, my dad was not in the military. My granddad was, but I never knew him. And so I don't, that kind of strain does not run through my family. And I don't want to step on any toes for those of you who've served, if you have family or friends who have done that and have, Sacrifice. So just hear me now. I'm not, again, not trying to be flippant with anything I want to share, but I want you to hear where I'm coming from and kind of wrestle with this as well. 
the bigger picture for me this morning is uh, tension in the Bible. I'm going to call it theological tension. And if you read through the Bible, which hopefully you have, you pick up pretty quick that there are these different, they almost seem like these different poles that are emphasized. And we're trying to figure out, well, how do we hold both of those things together? So I'm going to use this issue of church and state as an example of how do we hold these poles together. So see if you can follow me as we do that. We're going to start in verse 35 of chapter 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he said, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. So what's going on here is this is uh, Jesus' response. He's been challenged four separate occasions by the religious leaders who are trying to trap him. They're trying to trip him up, get him to say something that they can use uh, against him. He's shut them down every time, and this is his response to them. They've been trying to trip him up based on his understanding of the Bible, and so he kind of says, all right, smarty pants, how about this for y'all? And he presents two truths that are found in the Old Testament that look like they contradict one another, and he says, reconcile them. The Pharisees, the people who, and the, the, the teachers of the law, they spent their time reconciling the Old Testament to itself. There's this massive body of literature called the oral tradition, and all of it is, here's, here's the nuances of all of this stuff that's written. Here's how it fits together. Here's how you apply it. Here's how you live it out. And so what Jesus is kind of throws a hand grenade in the middle of that and says, work on this, that you know that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. We know he comes through that line. He's going to be the son of David. So how come in Psalm 110, David said to God, that first Lord, if you were looking in Hebrew, is Yahweh, the name of God. He says to my Lord, Adonai, my master, my, my Lord, and with a lowercase, he says to them, you know, I'm going to make your enemies a footstool. So what David is saying to his son, David is calling his son Lord. In a patriarchal culture, you don't do that. Dads are at the top of the food chain. So for David, how, how can David say to his son, you're my Lord? And he just kind of lays it out there for them. They don't have a response. I think the picture for us, what I want us to pull away, we know on this side of the cross, it's because Jesus wasn't just the son of, God, uh, son of David, he was also the son of God. And so that's how David can say, Lord, just like the rest of us do as well. But the pull away for us when it comes to the Bible is this idea of consistency. And that's what I want you to hold on to. Uh, there are 40 different people who wrote the Bible over 1,600 years, three different languages, all type, different cultures, histories, walks of life. Peter was a fisherman. Moses was raised in, to be royalty in Egypt. And there's everybody in between. Luke is a doctor. There, all these different backgrounds and perspectives have all come together to write these 66 books that we have in the Bible. And again, if you read it, it can feel like it's pulling itself apart at times. But what we need to hold on to is there's one author underneath all of that. That's what inspiration means. The Holy Spirit, the same God, inspired all of that. So when you read God is love, the same God that inspired that also inspired Joshua, where you've got this just massive massacre of people, men, women, and children in the promised land. You have both of those coming from the same God. One common thing people have done, it says the God of the Old Testament, he's just not the same as the God of the New. Something happened in between Malachi and Matthew. We got a different God, or he 
you know, went to therapy or something happened where he's, he's different. It's, no, Jesus doesn't let us do that. He calls the God of the Old Testament his father. It's the same guy, same God, same character. And there's this consistent thread that runs underneath it, which is a challenge to us, but it's also an encouragement to us. He's not senile. He didn't forget what he wrote in different parts. It all fits together coherently, and I think the challenge is for us to figure out exactly what that looks like. How do these things hold together, these, these poles that tend to pull apart, how do we hold them together? We don't want to be like the Pharisees who, you know, here's the stumper and they just, well, that doesn't fit within my perspective and so I'm going to kill you, which is what they did. They killed him. And that's not, the, that's not helpful for us as Christians. Well, I don't understand this, so I'm just not going to think about it. Well, that doesn't fit in the way I think, so I'm going to pretend it's not there. That's, that's third grade. We're, we're beyond that. We need to figure out how to hold these things together. So look back in verse 18. The Sadducees, that was a uh, part of the religious establishment who say there is no resurrection. Sadducees just believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They said those five books were inspired, nothing else is. There is no resurrection. Come to him with the question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but has no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. So, real, real quick, that's called leveret marriage. It's in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. I'll try to explain it. Real, uh, I have a brother, Micah. So let's say I'm married to Misty. I die and we don't have any kids. Then in this world, Micah's responsibility is to have a kid with Misty who will be considered my kid. So he has a kid named Joe, and Joe is my son, even though Micah is the biological father. Are you with me? And the reason is because um, territory, the land was the inheritance. God said you get each one of your families gets a chunk of land, and if there are no male heirs, then that land is lost for that family. And so my name would be removed. My family would never get an inheritance. The David Eldridge's go away. And that, God doesn't want that to happen. So this, this perspective is to allow Joe to carry on our family line. If you don't work, if you don't, that doesn't make sense, don't worry about it. And don't do that. We don't do this stuff anymore. <laughs> Just in case you were, don't. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. With the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus said, are, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. So what's going on here, Pharisees don't believe in resurrection. And so they're mocking Jesus. They're going up to him and saying, hey, silly guy who believes in a resurrection, what about this story? Doesn't that just show how silly you are? Who gets this woman if all seven brothers have been married to her? Ha, 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 aren't you silly? And what Jesus does is he undercuts all of that. First, there is no marriage at, at the resurrection. I don't know if that's something that you're aware of. If you're married, your marriage ends at death. What do we say? Till death do us part. And death does part us in terms of our marriage relationship. There's still relationship 
in the new creation, new heaven, new earth, resurrection, however, heaven, whatever words you want to use. There's still relationship there, but there's not marriage there. In the New Testament, there's one marriage depicted after resurrection, and it's the bride of Christ, which is us corporately as the church, married to Jesus as our groom. I don't know what that looks like, but that's the marriage feast that's talked about in the New Testament, not individuals remaining married. Again, there's no... There's still relationship, but marriage does not extend beyond the grave. The second thing he does is he uh, goes after their presupposition. The the Sadducees are introduced as people who don't believe in the resurrection. That's the belief that they come to to him with. There's a bias there, a worldview, a prejudice. Again, whatever you want to call it, that's what they're coming to Jesus with. And he goes right after that. He says in Exodus 3, This is how God introduces himself to Moses. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, all those guys are in Genesis. They've been dead for at least 400 years before God introduces himself to Moses this way. And what Jesus is is saying is what good would it do God to introduce himself to Moses as the God of a bunch of dead guys? Moses, you're about to have to stand up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at this time, and this is uh, how, why I want you to do it, because I'm the God of a bunch of your dead ancestors. That's not encouraging to Moses. There's, no, there's nothing there that's going to make him say, well, okay, if my ancestors who followed you are all dead, well, I might as well go to my death as well. Pharaoh, bring it on. And that's not what he's saying is I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go back and read the promises I made to those guys to be their savior, to be their deliverer. I'm continuing that on. Through you, And if you look at chapter 3, God identifies himself to Moses as what? I am, present tense. That's who he is. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a present tense there. So for us to pull away, obviously there is a resurrection. Many of you already believe that. But in this thing that we're talking about, trying to figure out how are we supposed to read the Bible... How are we supposed to hold together these kind of theological poles that tend to pull apart? One of the things that we all need to admit is we all come to the Bible with a bias. We all come with a worldview, with a prejudice, with a paradigm. You fill in the blank. We all bring one. Objectivity is a myth. Nobody is objective. Nobody. That, that mountain doesn't exist where I can stand on that mountain and I can see everything purely and clean. No. Everybody brings perspective to everything. That's not bad. What's bad is when we don't admit it. We allow it to go unspoken or unsaid or it remains unconscious or subconscious. Then what we do is what the Pharisees, what the Sadducees did, which is twist the Bible to fit our own perspective. And none of it is malicious. It's all subconscious. And that's what the the Sadducees are doing here. They already say there is no resurrection. And so when they read this stuff, they assume there is no resurrection, an easy thing to pick on. There are people who are anti-supernatural. There's no such thing as miracles. They don't happen. And so when they read, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they go through and they just cut out all of the miracles. That stuff didn't really happen. Those are all just stories. They're allegories that are meant to teach us something spiritual. And they do the same thing with the resurrection. Jesus wasn't physically raised from the dead. It was a spiritual resurrection that was um, depicted in order to give us hope when we're hopeless. That's an, okay, if you have that anti-supernatural 
biased, the thing to do is just to own that and say, you know what, I don't believe in miracles. I've been alive for 36 years, I've never seen one. And so I don't think those things happen. That is a much healthier perspective when you're reading the Bible. For, for, to say that out loud, own it, and put it on the table. Than to, than to allow that to be something that's internal, that's unconscious or subconscious, that causes you to redline out huge portions of what happens in the New Testament. You're, that's creating God in your image versus allowing him to speak and shape who you are. Again, we all have those things. Um, a scientist who may say, the, fair, the Sadducees come to Jesus and say, there is no resurrection. A scientist may come to Jesus and say, there is no such thing as creation. There's just evolution. All right. Just own that. Put it out there. Don't just assume it. A pluralist may say there's no such thing as sin. That therefore, we don't need a savior. All these roads lead to God. A postmodernist may say there's no such thing as truth. The Bible just has a bunch of opinions that you can take or leave depending on your perspective. An activist may say there's no such thing as a definition for marriage. It's a cultural institution that changes with the times. Those things we need to own going in. Whether, again, we'll look in a minute specifically about church and state, but about anything when it comes to these tricky um, tensions in the Bible. We want to make sure that we're clear about what we're bringing to the table. So one, sovereignty versus free will. So God is sovereign. He's in charge of everything. And yet he gives us the ability to make choices, and those choices seem to matter. Those things seem to pull apart from one another. And some of you fall more one way or the other based on whatever. And it doesn't matter. It's just a matter, again, of owning that. God is love. We know that is true. But we also know people are going to spend eternity in hell. Those things tend to pull apart. How can a loving God punish somebody, if that's what it is, or allow somebody to suffer forever? Those things tend to pull apart. And again, some of you are more biased towards justice, this idea of absolutely burn because of what you did. And some of you are these compassionate, squishy people, and you're like, no, everybody, you know, and, and their pets. Or it, it doesn't matter. It's you got to know what you're bringing to the table because it's going to affect how you read the Bible and what you see. Prayer creates a huge tension for us. This God who is all-knowing and is all-powerful and knows the end from the beginning, and yet he's saying, if my people pray, then I will fill in the blank. How do those two things come together? For some of you, prayer is a waste of time in your mind because God already knows everything. And so you don't. You don't pray. There's a tension there between what we read about prayer in the Bible. Again, this picture of God as, in some places, he's unchangeable. And yet he's saying, pray, and it will change what I do. How do I hold those two things together? And again, some of you fall one way or the other in that. The idea of election, that God chooses people who are going to be in his family, versus this invitation that we see throughout the Bible. Jesus says, follow me. How do both of those things hold together? They're both biblical doctrines. How do you hold both of those things together? And again, some of you fall one way or the other, and what's important is recognizing what you're bringing to the table so you can allow the Bible to speak and not just say what you've already determined that it's going to say. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, what's the most important? The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all our heart and with all our understanding and with all our strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So this whole idea, again, of we're trying to hold these tensions together. I'm not going to get into what this passage meant. Six weeks ago, Jamie Brewer preached on it. He did a good job. You can go back and listen on what it means to love God and to love people. For us, the takeaway when it comes to, again, biblically, how do I read the Bible, hold these things together, there's a default position that we can always fall back on. And it's very simple. Love God and love people. You can memorize a massive chunk of the Bible with those four words. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament. And you, you can say you, you know all of them if you know those two. Love God and love people because they all fall under one of those two headings. We read that God is love. He defines himself as love. That can be a fallback position for you. Some of you have read the book of Joshua, and it is difficult to read. As you're reading it, the lens, when it gets confusing, why is he saying children too? Why the women also? They're not fighting. How come even the animals, he's saying, have to be killed? What is that fallback position? God is love. So somehow the same God who commanded Joshua to just mow these people down sends his son for all of us. It's the same God, and he's love. And so it's us trying to hold those things together. Again, the fallback position, God is love, and what he's looking for from his people are to love him and to love others. When there are directives that for you seem confusing, maybe it's between two goods. How do I decide between this and this? Which one wins? I can only do one. Which one is the best expression of loving God and loving other people and move in that direction? Again, when you're trying to hold some of these things together, election for some people is very difficult. Does that mean God chooses certain people to go to hell? If, you can, if your fallback position, God is love, and that's how he acts. So let me figure out how to hold this together through that lens. It, it allows us, sometimes we get in the weeds trying to make decisions and trying to figure out how the Bible applies to our life. And you're, it's almost like you can rise up to 10,000 feet and look down the situation and say, God is love. And he wants people to love him, and he wants people to love each other. And that can just bring some perspective as you're trying to work through these decisions in your life. Now for our specific example, verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So all they're doing there is setting him up. That's just, they're buttering him up for this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's. Then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And they're amazed at him. So, here's the, so they come to him, they butter him up, set him up, and they present him with this dilemma where he has to say yes or no. There's no wiggle room. Caesar or God? If he says yes to the tax, he loses his kind of street cred because none of the people, all of the people resent the tax. 
it's seen as, subject, as, as a sign of their subjugation to Rome? No. Nobody wants to pay it. If he says no to the tax, he gets on the wrong side of Caesar, arrests, and all of the things that can fall from there. And they know it. They don't care whether he says yes or no. That's why he says he knew their hypocrisy. They don't want to know the answer to the question. They just want him to answer it because they're going to hang him with it either way. And he come, this, to me, this is cliche for us. This is a brilliant response. I mean, brilliant. Bring me a coin. Whose picture is this? The word portrait, image, from Genesis 127. We've been created in the image of God. And he says, whose image is it? And whose image is this coin made? Caesar's. We'll give him what's his. Implication. And whose image are you made? God's. We'll give him what's his as well. Again, brilliant response that he gives. That's why they're amazed at what he says. He, they, they give him what they think is they put him on the horns of a dilemma. And they're going to be hang, able to hang him either way. And he comes all the way around and presents him with this deep and profound truth in a very simple way. So for us, pulling back from that, here's an example. There's an example here of this tension in terms of how we relate to government. So give to Caesar what's Caesar and God's what's God's. Well, what is Caesar's and what's God's? What do I give to each one? And what if those two things ever or happen to come into conflict? And how am I supposed to know what to do? Let me give you two passages. One is this is Romans 13. Excuse me. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, Paul is writing this about a pagan empire. This is not a Christian government. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. If you want to be free from fear of the one in authority, then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. That is also why you pay taxes. If you want to know why, there you go. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, then honor. So that seems pretty clear cut, right? My response is to submit. Authorities are instituted by God. Paul is not talking about a Christian government. Rome was far from that. And he's saying, you submit. The government holds no terror if you do wrong. So don't do wrong. You don't have anything to fear. Give the government what it's due. This is Acts 4. Then they, that's the Sanhedrin, so that's another authority, that's a religious authority in Jerusalem at the time. When the Sanhedrin called them in again, that's Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we can't help speaking what we have seen and heard. So then you've got kind of this other side. Over here I've got submit and that's what I do and it doesn't matter whether it's a Christian or a secular, or excuse me, Christian or a pagan authority, I'm supposed to submit, and that's that. And then over here, I've got, no, you, you decide. You tell me, who am I supposed to obey, you or God? Which, I'm going to, implication, if you read chapter 5, they keep talking. We're going to disobey you in order to obey God. Those things can tend to pull apart 
from one another. Now, there's some cases where that might be clear. There are about 40 countries in the world where it's illegal to be a Christian. In those places, Christians are actively persecuted. They're arrested. Their homes are destroyed. They're killed. About 100, what is it, 168, 174,000, something like that. Christians are martyred every year. That is, they're killed solely because of their faith. And so in that case where the state is so obviously wicked, maybe we say, well, that, I land in this Acts 4 camp, and even though it's illegal to talk about Jesus, I'm going to do it anyway because he said to go and make disciples, and so that's what I'm going to do. In our context, things are a little fuzzier. How are we supposed to know what to do? And I would say even in those contexts around the world, things are not quite as clear-cut as we might see them from the outside. Both of those verses are true. The same God inspired Paul and Peter and John in their response to the authorities, and how are we supposed to know what to do? When it comes to picking a license plate, who cares? Pick. What if they reinstitute a draft? We're already in six countries. What if they add a few more? What if the predator drones don't work and they need more people? Then what are we going to do? That's a real thing. How do you decide in the middle of that? Which way do I go? Do I submit to the government and say, absolutely? Or, do I, or is that a point where I can be some type of a conscientious objector and say, no, that's wrong? How do, I, how do we hold both of those positions in line where somebody can beat me over the head with Romans 13 and say, you got to enlist, and I, somebody else can beat you over the head with Acts 4 and say, if that's, if that's wrong in some way, then you object and you just pay, you pay the, 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 the consequences, whatever the price of your obedience is, well, you pay that, but you don't have to do it. First thing we need to do, if we're trying to decide church and state, what does the Bible say? We need to recognize our own biases. And that's, again, what I was asking earlier. For some of you who maybe come from a military background, you might have a certain set of lenses that you look at. I don't come from that. I might have a different set of lenses. Some things are generational, based on your perspective, based on who your parents were, based on your experience. We have different lenses that we look at when we approach this whole thing of government and how Christians are supposed to relate. And again, the, the issue is not right or wrong. It's laying them on the table so I can be honest. I'm a rule follower. So Romans 13 naturally lines up with me. But I might also be a sissy. And so my response is going to be no draft. I'm out. And I'm going to spiritualize that because I'm afraid. And I need to be willing to lay that out there as well, whatever the issue is, whether it's House Bill 87 or whatever that the, the immigration thing is, lay it out there. If you don't like foreigners, put it out there. If you, your family has been adversely affected by an illegal immigrant, put it out there. Whatever the case, or maybe you've spent time in other countries and so your perspective is different, whatever, you've got to be willing to lay it out there and allow the Bible to shape your perspective versus spiritualizing your perspective. That's a completely different approach. A couple of things in terms of what the Bible says about the government and about authority. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. You're going to despise one and serve the other. You can't serve God and money. And I would say you can't serve God and government. You've got to pick. God does not equal government. And on the, sometimes on the 4th of July, we equate that. Somehow the U.S., we can kind of, it, it almost becomes a modern-day ancient Israel. We're God's favored people. It's not true. We're favored, and so is everybody else. 
if you want to look at it that way. We're special, and so is everybody else. There was one country that God called out, and it was Israel in the Old Testament with Abraham. He said, I'm going to make a nation out of you, Abraham. And if you look at the shift, it's what we've been looking at the past few weeks with Jesus saying, this fig tree is withering. It's not producing fruit. This temple, I'm overturning. It's him saying, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing the political state anymore. There's a new people, and they're my people. House of prayer for all nations is what we looked at a few weeks ago. So, the, I, so again, equating, which you probably don't do, but equating our country or government with God, wrong. Throughout history, people have tried to take that title. You can't do it. Two separate things. I serve, we, we only have one king, and it's Jesus, period, dot, the end. God doesn't take sides. This is Joshua 5. This won't be on the screen. I didn't uh, get it up there. So this is Joshua. He's taken over for Moses. He's crossed the Jordan River with the armies of Israel, and they're about to enter Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or for our enemies? That, we ask that question all the time. Whose side are you on, God? Mine or theirs? Democrat or Republican? Pro, against? That's, we ask that question. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell down to the ground in reverence and said, what message does my Lord have for his servant? I want you to hear this. This is Joshua, handpicked by God to lead this nation that God handpicked, created, called out of Egypt. Like, God, yes, those are his people. And this is his man leading his people explicitly on his mission into the land that God said is mine and I'm going to give to you. Yes. And when Joshua says, are you on our side, what does the angel say? No, no, I'm not on your side. I don't pick sides. Are you on my side? That's the question. Joshua's response, what message do you have for me? That's us. Not God, are you for this bill or against this bill? Not God, are you for this person or against this person? God, are you a Democrat or Republican? Internationally, God, are you on our side in this war or are you on their side in this war? Again, there... In terms of just war, there's not one more just than what we just read about in Joshua because God explicitly commissioned his people to go and take the land, which he said was his. And even in the midst of that, he won't pick sides. He's above all of that. And so for us, we don't ask, what side are you on? What we say is, what message do you have for me? I'm on the city council. What message do you have for me? I'm going to the polls. What message do you have for me? I work in whatever the sphere is. I interact with government in whatever way that I interact. What message do you have for me? Not are you on my side. God is not a name on a petition. He stands above all of those things. And our response is never to say, he's on my team. The silly example People, you know, praying for their sports teams to win. He doesn't care. He's not on one of the teams. He's not on the side. Pick. Pick. That's, no. Even though, he, blow it out, international incidents, he's not on a side. He 
He doesn't take sides. What he's looking for is people who will say, what message do you have for me? I'm going to go live that out, whatever that looks like. You tell me, I want to be on your side. I'm not trying to get you on mine. The state is a steward. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Matthew 28, 18, 18 through 20, Jesus saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. We looked at this last week. If, God, if all authority is Jesus's, 100%, then any authority anyone else has has been delegated to them by him. There is no extra authority out here that people are grabbing onto. Everything is his, and he chooses to delegate it out through certain people and entities. If you're a parent, you have a sphere of delegated authority, and it's in your home, and you don't need to give it up. If you're an employer, you have a sphere of delegated authority, and that's your business, and it's yours, and you don't need to give it up. The government, again, whether, it's, whether we would call it secular, pagan, Christian, whatever we want to say, has been delegated authority by God to maintain the public welfare. Issues of justice fall under the umbrella of government, both uh, in terms of punishing people who get on the wrong side of things, that's retributive, or distributive justice, making sure that everyone has access. Those issues are all things that he has delegated to the government. That's their proper sphere. Get that? We want to recognize that and honor that. Again, if you're a rule follower, that's easy. If you're more kind of anarchist, bent, difficult. Let's blow the whole thing up and start over. All right, blow the whole thing up and start over. But there's going to be another government. There always has been. And it's going to be a democracy or it's going to be a dictatorship or it's going to be a monarchy or find some other type. All of that stuff, it's all delegated authority that's been given and they have a proper sphere that they operate in. And we want to recognize that as Christians. Again, recognizing the delegated authority that they have, whether they're Christians or not. So, don't bring, I'm not going to say don't bring an agenda. Be honest about the agenda that you bring to the question. What is this? Allow the Bible to shape that, whatever that may be. And then you want to use love to reconcile these truths. So again, let's take this whole idea of a draft. Somebody, let's think World War II. That, that is evil, what is going on over there. They're slaughtering innocent people by the millions. It is wicked. And justice says, stop. The Bible says you stand up for those who are oppressed. You stand up for the powerless. You stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. You speak for those who can't speak. And so in, from that perspective, sign me up. Put me in, coach. I'm going. And I would say, perfect. That's great. That's a strong biblical case. Somebody else is going to come, and they're going to quote Sermon on the Mount. You turn the other cheek. It's not an eye for an eye anymore. We don't live there. If it's an eye for an eye, then what happens is both of us are blind pretty quick. And then we start looking for other things to pull off at each other. That's why Jesus said, turn the other cheek. It breaks the cycle of retribution. I slap you, you slap me. I slap you, you slap me. I slap you, you slap me. We just keep going over and over and over again. If I slap you and you turn the other cheek, what am I going to do? I'm going to slap you again. At some point, I'm going to get tired of slapping you. You've broken the cycle of retribution. And what you may say is you don't repay evil for evil. That's what Jesus said. You don't do that. You don't overcome by evil. You don't repay evil with evil. You turn the other cheek. And so I'm going to say no. 
I can't. You're right, those guys are bad and they're wicked. I can't do that. If that means I've got to go to jail because I'm refusing, I'm going to jail. I don't know about going to Canada, but I'll go to jail for it. That's paying the, that's owning it, right? Those are the consequences. Who, who, who wins? I don't, I don't know. Those are both well, easily defensible positions from the Bible. And I would say as long as your heart, your conscience is clear on either of those, then you're okay. And you pay the consequences of whatever that decision is, going or staying. You own it. Don't run from it. You own it. And you, whatever the consequences of that, that's what you're going to have to face. A lot of these tensions, they're not easily resolvable. That's why they're tensions. People have been talking about these things for 2,000 years, and we're not going to fix it in 25 minutes. What I want for you is to begin to figure out how to pull these things together in terms of how you interact with God in the Bible. To see there are poles here, and they do this. And your job is to not just grab onto one and forget the other. It's to hold on to both and kind of find the truth as you hold on to each of those. And the way you do that is you recognize there is truth. The same God inspired both. The same God inspired Romans 13 and Acts 4. And he didn't forget what he said. And so I've got to hold on to both of those. There's coherence there somewhere. And the second thing for me is to say, you know what, I need to be willing to admit the biases that I bring and the prejudices that I bring and the worldview that I bring to the table. I've got to lay that out there and say, God, show me. You, I don't believe there's a resurrection. You show me otherwise kind of thing. I've got to be willing to lay that on the table so the Bible can shape what I think versus me shaping what the Bible thinks and only seeing what I want to see. And then my default position, my fallback position, when I get in the weeds and I can't figure it out, God is love. He wants me to love him. He wants me to love others. That's going to help me synthesize, summarize, get through some of this stuff. Again, when I'm getting in the weeds and I'm trying to figure out exactly which box am I supposed to check in November. That, that's a nice fallback position to have. I'm going to, God is love. He wants me to love him. He wants me to love other people. So on these options that are in front of me, What's the best expression of that? We good? Good. All right, let's do this. If you, last week we talked about um, 